Welcome to the Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters podcast. Here you'll find a safe space to learn and grow with leaders in education, disability studies, disability advocacy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations. Specifically, we look at how disability fits into diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how to frame disability awareness in the context of educating K-12 communities. This podcast serves educators, parents, and community members who strive to learn and or teach about disability in a research-based and respectful way, moving beyond simple awareness and diving into inclusive and socially responsive conversations. Thank you for joining us today. Now let's go beyond awareness. Hello, Keith Jones. Hello, Diana. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much, Keith. Thank you for being here. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. So I was thinking about this earlier, about how we met. I don't even know if you know the first time we met, but it was in San Diego at um, Dan Habib's premiere in 2007 of Including Samuel, and you were a keynote speaker. And, you know, now he's gone on to different films and (laughs) Intelligent Lives and now in my disability road. You're not in any of the sequels, are you? I'm in the last one. My disability roadmap? Yeah, I'm one of the, yeah, and I did some of the music too. Oh my gosh. Okay. And then after the conference, we went to dinner. We all walked to this little strip mall near the conference. Yeah, yeah. We went to dinner and you had us rolling. <laughs> we, we were, you were telling us stories about different things and oh my gosh, it was so much fun to get to know you there. And since then, we kept in contact, and I like to think that I, I can consider you a friend. Oh, <laughs> you, you, uh, you better. Oh, yes. thank you. Mm-hmm. So um, I want you to tell us about what you do. What are you the most passionate about and why as it relates to education? Okay. Well, hello again, Diana. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is Keith Jones. I am the president, CEO of Soul Touch and Experiences LLC, uh, as well as one of the co-founding members of Crip Hop Nation. Um, and my job, what is my job? It's the question my mother always asked me. She's always like, what the hell do you do? Um, but my job really has been, uh, in terms of running this company, I had taken everything that I liked and said, well, if I'm a stress at employment, I'm a stress for myself. Um, I had worked in uh, two, two or three nonprofits where, um, and this goes to the question about education, where we were talking about, we were working with young kids in Boston, young kids in the state doing, you know, AmeriCorps type stuff, youth bill type stuff. And each one of these people, um, had come across some of the things I had come across just in a different form. Um, You know, it was, you know, activism at its most basic, but at its core, Uh, you know, because I really, I was like, I think when I started this, I was was a pup, God, it was 25 years ago, I'm so old, that's why I have no hair. Um, And I I started, and it was was like all of my activism and policy stuff really was accidental, but as it related to education, it was because my mother was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. My grand, you know, my people came up through the great migration, leaving sharecropping 
and chattel slavery and going on to Missouri to become what, you know, what would be called black middle class nurses working for the federal, um, federal government, but having to deal in the city where you still couldn't be in school with white folks. And so me coming in the generation, after two generations later in St. Louis being that really segregated city and having a disability was like, you go, you go to school and you have teachers looking at you going, well, you can't really learn, but here's a paper. It just never, it never really said to me how, if you're in charge of education, how are you not smart enough to figure out how to educate me? Mm. And so that really, and so my passion about educational um, access, reform, inclusion, one boy is born out of a personal, um, just the journey, two, um, was because it, it, it baffles me that a well, a well-functioned society is a well-informed society, a well-educated society. A society doesn't mean you get along uh, in terms of like what restaurant you're gonna go to, but you have a foundational common understanding of what critical thinking is. You know, we have students who would excel if they had a different educational structure versus put your feet flat, hands on the desk and look forward. I can't do that. And so because I can't do that, you then get to project your own um, isms on me, mm. which then affects the way you teach me, the way, I, the way I accrue information. Is it reflected on my report card? Do I then get tracked off into resource classes, which then tracks me off into, you know, as a teenager now, I'm socially ostracized. Now I can't be just a regular kid in all of these things because we know this. This is a 40 year trend line and that's being conservative. So that's really what drove me and still drives me about education is that I got kids in education, public education. Um, so I have a personal stake in it. I'm a product of personal education, public education. And I never, this is just me rambling at the moment, but I never really understood why public education had to be. Why did we strive to make public education so mediocre? Like, why do we strive to make it not the best in the, on the planet? Why private education equated with excellence, greatness, success, and public education is seen as, oh, well, at least you survived. So that's really kind of, that's the backdrop to the passion about um, education. Well, I want to get back to that excellence in education and what, what would constitute that in your mind and how that relates to inclusive education. But I want to also go back to your story as a child in the education system. I'm assuming you were in, in public schools between the 70s and 80s, yes? Yes. Okay, yes. you're about the same same um, uh, generation here. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> so, so tell us, I mean, do you have any stories you can think back on that, that you can share with us about that represent what the mindsets were at the time? And as you said, have continued somewhat, you know, that we've seen this, the same trends happening currently. Yeah, I mean, I think what people forget is that 
Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. The full adoption of Brown versus Board of Education, I, some would argue, and I would argue, it's not even complete. And we're in 2022. Um, but once you add disability to it, then you get into the 504, the IDEA, the right to um, uh, you know, equal and fair education. And so for me growing up in St. Louis, we were substantially safe. Like if you, was a, if you had a disability, you went to one or two schools. Like you were, there was no inclusive education. All the kids with disabilities went, at least when I was in the city, we went to the Michael School. Then if you was on the north side of St. Louis, you went there. You was on the south side, they bust you there. Uh, if you lived in the county, they would send you to another school out in Florissant. Um, and what just baffled me is, I mean, as a kid, you don't really pay attention to it because the school, your mama gets you up, wash your face, brush your teeth, push you out the door, get out of my face, and come <laughs> back and don't, and, I, and, I, and don't come home stupid, right? Like, you better go to school and come back smart. Um, but the pattern in practice was, one, we were still only 15 years removed from Brown versus Board of Education. We literally were six to 10 years removed from the, the assassination of major civil rights leaders. We were in the height in the, in the, uh, of the Black Power Movement and the reflexive response of white flight leaving. The, so it was this social upheaval in the 70s and the 80s. And so what you had were people talking about school choice. Um, you know, we don't want kids to go here. And teachers saying, you know, I remember my first inclusive class. I was the first kid in Ithaca, New York to go mainstream. How old like, were you? Oh, God, I was like nine, eight, or nine. And we were in up, upstate New York. Um, and I went half a day to court for regular school. And then they would pick me up and send me to the, to the special school um, because I had physical therapy, speech therapy. But it I, was- I, wanted to, I want to just make sure everybody understands that when you said special, you had a yeah. certain expression on your face. So that was yeah. a quote unquote special. That's, okay, got uh, it. Yeah, okay, yeah. The, 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 my face <laughs> will, will, get, will, will give me away, which is why I don't ever have me on a, on a witness stand. Um, but the special schools, even now, when people talk about special education, uh, and the trend line that I saw was, again, people who chose to get into education, who wanted to, who chose education for a career and because, you know, it's, a, it's, it's this thing and they feel like they're getting back, but they still allowed their prejudices to dominate who they thought were worthy of being educated. And that you're in public education, which public education by default means the public, which means everybody. Don't matter if you got crutches, guide dog, hearing aids, or bad breath, or bad ankles, right? It's like the public. And it just, it, as a kid, it baffled me because people were kept telling me what I couldn't do, you know, what I, what I could not learn, what I was not supposed to be interested in. And I'm here, some, 40 years later and having conversations with kids in high school were like, Keith, I didn't know I could even live a life like you live in because nobody thinks I can go to school. This is, you know, so which is why I had the big countdown last year to retirement because 
I shouldn't be having the same discussion about educators who chose a profession, which is a clear mandate to impart information upon the end user, which is the student, in order for them to be more informed and more, in, more educated and to not allow your personal biases to impact your skill set and ability. Meaning, if you want to be a great teacher, it doesn't matter if the kid shows up and hasn't taken a math in two days. That means you have to use your skill set to understand that they may have a different kind of economic situation at home and you are the one safe place. And that is not, oh, Diana, I've never been around Latinx kids or kids from migrant countries. I don't know how to teach them. Okay, well, then that means you're just a terrible teacher. Just say that. Say, you know, or what's the other one? Oh, Miss Carson, I was never given, I was never trained how to teach those students. The hell, who the hell is those students? And that's why my passion is really, if you're not in intentional places, like we're out in public, you don't like me, I don't like you, so be it. But if you wake up, put your pants on, go to traffic, go get your cup of coffee, get mad at the people because they messed up your order again, and come to school to teach, you cannot penalize those students because you don't believe that they're able to learn. That is the problem in education and those isms are deep-seated and deep-rooted. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Keith. I know for many of my listeners who are passionate teachers, that's really hard to hear. Passionate educators, you know, who really do have a great heart. It's hard for me to hear. And I have to reflect on myself as a teacher. Were there times when my own biases caused me to limit in my mind uh, what a student was capable of learning. And I really appreciate that, those challenging words, Keith, I really do. And I hope that our listeners do too. And I know that you have a deep respect for education. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You, you spend your time, you volunteer your time uh, often to educate children and educators as well. So um, I know that, and I want my listeners to know that. <laughs> That's who you are. And right. yeah, and, and you believe in public education and you send your children yes. there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, so I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a hot second. Yeah. Um, I rage against the machine because people are always like, oh my God, public education is so bad. And I'm like, that's because you make, you make a concerted effort for it to be bad. Like there's a distinction between stuff being bad just because it's bad. And people saying, well, I know we're on an agricultural culture, uh, agricultural calendar, and our children don't need to get up to go feed the cows at five o'clock in the morning and, you know, be home by three in order to tend to the chickens versus saying, you know what, we understand that we have a dysfunctional funding base that we use to, to fund public schools. We understand for 20 years that students have been able, people have been able to quote unquote predict outcomes by looking at zip codes. We understand that depending on high rental, high home mortgage, we know which, which communities have the good economic tax base to have school services. When you're talking about schools and students are sitting in their jackets because the school has no heat. And then when you're talking about, we were just talking about this, 
Like we grew up in the era when you could go to the back of the class and go to the supply cabinet. If you came in the class and you didn't have a pencil or paper, Keith, did you do your homework? Diana, did you do your homework? Ah, I don't have no paper, I left it. Well, there's some in the back of the room, right? Now you go in the room and they said, well, we would give you some, but we didn't have the fundraiser. And when we were watching the back to, the back to school sales, you know, kids are getting lists now to go to office, you know, Home Depot and what to bring to school. So I like, I just keep thinking public education can be the world standard if you treat the end user, AKA the students as precious as you do if they were buying an iPhone mm. or, or a car, mm-hmm. right? If you taught, if you treat the end user as the, the dream, like, if we know that our students are our future, why are we so hesitant to teach a child who may be struggling with their gender identity, but loves science, that you still can be the most brilliant astronaut, astrophysicist, and still wrestle with your identity, but you can still be brilliant. And because we we understand that we will support you in your journey of self-discovery while informing you and educating you and supporting you, that is not complicated. I think that's it. And quite just kept, I actually wanted to be a teacher. So I, that was my goal was to be a teacher because I taught a little bit. And I know what it's like to stand in front of a classroom and look at somebody else's kids and be like, you know what? <laughs> right? so, but I think that's, that's, that's why I believe in public education because you know we can have a better functioning, more, um, informed, engaged, and smart community, and we can tackle a lot of the issues that are perpetual if we just invest in schools and students and treat them like the precious things that they are. Yeah, I know that a lot of my teacher friends would agree with that, because so many of us, as you would be doing too, if you were one of the educators, are funding a lot of what's in our classrooms ourselves as well. Yeah. And as well as reaching out to families and communities for support, but yes, good. Very good. Thank you so much. So when you were growing up, what was your understanding of disability? You know, did you, did you always have, were you always such a social justice uh, activist where, how did you come to be who you are now? What what was your understanding of disability? What were your experiences? And what was your family's experience of you uh, as a family member with a disability? And was there advocacy that had to happen? I mean, I, I want to get a bit better picture of. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So I so to give you a list of context, ableism runs deep in the Black community. And, the, and there is a history of why and that, that relates to uh, the indentured slave, the indentured slash chattel slavery um, going back. So when you talk about the ugly laws, you talk about vagrancy laws, you talk about um, the runaway slave laws, you talk about you know how you can't um, you you know panhandling. All of those are, are stemmed out of you know Jim Crow era slavery laws to effectively limit the freedom of black Americans in this country. And in order to keep people enslaved and and to be under the threat, they would disable slaves. They would, you would be debilitated. And then if you were a certain level of debilitation, 
you were only used as mentors or, or fun um, if you were, and if you were born, quote unquote, not, not right, they would use black babies with disabilities as alligator babies. So this is, this is the history of being black and disabled in America. My family coming from, you know, the, the you know, coming from the Bayou and the Mississippi Delta, we, disability is not, the way we talk about disability now is not the way they were talking about it in the 50s and the 60s. We weren't disabled, we were crippled or handicapped, right? We weren't, um, you were supposed to be put in a nice home or an institution. My family, nope, that ain't, mm -mm, get up, <laughs> go to school. Uh, the, way, the way my cousins and I think about it, they used to get mad because, not because I had a disability, but because they thought I, my grandmother played favorites. I'm like, of course, because I'm cute. So yes, uh, like, but, <laughs> so, uh, but the irony was, it's one of those things where you, the, the, the social activism came from just us being wanting to be black, just to live in America. Because again, it's, this is me sitting with, you know, grandparents and uncles who are talking about their, their grandparents and their uncles and talking about how you know, Mr. Charlie would act crazy in the morning and how they would have to, you know, act a certain kind of way as to not to get the white man mad because they knew if even if they wanted to react, they could. So disability was never really high on, you know, oh my God, Keith, you're disabled. You need to, uh, you know, it was it was a reality in, in terms of my existence. Uh, my mother was right at the forefront I still to this day ask her, like, how did you do that? And she did it with no internet. She had the Dewey Decimal System and like the St. Louis Library. How do you, you know, you know, now everybody goes to Google. Um, but the, the, the social justice came from uh, my grandmother, you know, being very religious and devout, but being accepting of, you know, yes, she was a Christian, quote unquote, but she then, you know, she performed one of the first same-sex same marriages in St. Louis. And, you know, and for a Black mother of church to be doing that, people are like, you know, and then she went on to be an Olympic torchbearer um, when they brought the Olympics to Atlanta. And so you didn't get a chance to, I mean, you had to be aware of racism, you had to be aware of ableism, but you didn't get a chance to practice it because this was, this, that's not who we are. Yeah. You know, and so me coming to social justice really was in school for me, it was first me just fighting for me. Um, my mother and I had a discussion not too long ago when we had moved within Ithaca uh, over to the next town. I was the only black anything. Like when I walked into the school, I was the only, any of those, <laughs> what they now call BIPOC, our inclusive community, I was the checkbox. Keith is here, check, right? Like, um, but I felt- how, how old were you then? I was in the fifth grade, so fifth okay. grade. Okay. And I was in fifth grade upstate New York and it was in the Lansing School District and I fought every day. I fought every day. I had to fight every day for like five months. Why, what was happening? Because it was, it was, this is upstate New York. And so people have this, um, this, this, this dream of, 
you know, the North being liberal and um, accepting. But again, this is mid seventies, you know, tail end of the Vietnam War, end of the Vietnam War, um, you know, urban decay, quote unquote, you know, all of the social issues, you're coming out of Nixon going into forward, you got recession. And you, you have white people in America, you know, re reflexively revolting against inclusion, whether it was women looking for the ERA or the right to have Roe v. Wade or, you know, black people with the right to vote or kids with disabilities wanting to be included. There was a reflexive and visceral backlash. And it was subtle in school, which is why it was subtle in terms of the kids were, you know, we're six and 10 and 12 and 15. We don't really have the world global view of as to the larger as to why, but we're dealing with teachers who are coming in who may not agree with having to have a black kid with a disability who's using a head wand and an IBM rollerball typewriter in her class. Because that was the fight. Mm. You know, we don't we don't want Keith in this class because his typewriter won't disturb the rest of the kids. So it was with the actual educators and not with the other students. Yeah, no, all of my beefs really have not been with the kids. Wow. All of my beefs, all of my beefs through education have been with, which is why when I said it at the beginning, what are the biases and the barriers preventing teachers from teaching all the students? Well, it's not the kids. Kids don't raise themselves, right? If mm -hmm. you're a teacher, then, you know, the responsibility really, the responsibility, the power lies with you. And so it, it wasn't kids. I mean, kids are going to be kids. Like, did I have kids who tried to bother me? Sure. Were they successful? No. But, you know, but when it came to education, I'll give you one story. In high school, two stories. So in high school, when I first got to, um, and this is after we moved from upstate New York, located to Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and the teachers, on the first day of high school, my homeroom teacher, special ed teacher, took me around to each classroom that I was supposed to be in starting and she would introduce me and it's sticky sweet. She was an older white woman, but she would use that very condescending, patronizing tone. And then she would pat me on the head. Now, if you're black and from the South, that is a clearly because that's what they used to do to little black boys in the slavery. If they wanted luck, they would rub a little Negro child on the head. So when I told her, stop patting me like on your little Negro child on the head, much like they do now, I was told that I had an emotional outburst and that I was that I had an emotional, I was emotionally unstable and that I needed to see, you know, that if I did it again, that I would be sent to a different kind of classroom and, and have to talk to a social worker. And then for the first year of high school, when I told, <laughs> she said, she asked the homeroom, what do we all have in common? Now the homeroom was the special ed class, special education classroom where all the students with disabilities were housed or shoved into, um, you know, and we all looked at each other because we teenagers, we don't know what the hell we do. Like hip hop, I don't know what she got on. We like clothes, I don't, we like to eat, we don't want to be here. What, <laughs> you know, teenagers. And she was like, no, we're all handicapped. Oh, wow. And, and me being who I am, I said, uh, well, no, the only person here who's handicapped is that old bee behind the desk, which got me kicked out of the classroom. And they said I had an emotional, I was emotionally disturbed and they needed my mother and I to sign off to see a yeah. social worker. Not that, you know, the teacher just mislabeled me, but, you know, and so, you know, and that was in the 80s. 
and I literally heard that story from a, from a friend of mine two weeks ago about her, you know, somebody she knows. I'm like, damn it, man. Like, I swore I was doing some kind of good work and I'm still hearing the same story. So I think um, for your listeners, it's not, you know, yes, it's, it's hard and it's difficult, um, but my mom was a teacher. Like, teachers are world beaters. Like, you know, like, to get up every day and to choose to deal with somebody else's kid, baby, we love you all, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you baby, we love you all. Um, but in that, but in accepting that, that, that mantra and that task, it is also evident and, and required of you to be conscious of that, that precious gift that you're being good. Because we all remember the teachers that we love, but we also remember the teachers that we hate. And so I, I tell teachers when I speak to them uh, and, and to your listeners, you could either be a launching pad or a brick wall. Which mm. one do you want to be? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think we all want to be that launching pad for greatness. Yes. Yes. So, you know, you, you, you brought up ableism and, you know, everything you've shared about has revolved around ableism and isms just basically. Um, and I know that there's, I, I had, my listeners may remember that previously I had Leroy Moore Jr. on the show and you and Leroy are in cahoots in, yes. in music. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of, you both are passionate about Crip Hop Nation. I want you to share yeah. a little bit about Crip Hop Nation and why it's so important. You know, we, we, we think we, we want to understand about the importance of representation in the media, um, as well as what the messages may be that students get from pop culture about disability and what adults get from pop culture um, about what disability means. So could you just share a little bit about Crip Hop Nation and about why it's, why are you guys so passionate about doing this? And by the way, yeah. don't forget to mention that, that wonderful award you guys got recently. Uh, I, okay, fine. If I have, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, all right. uh, so Crip Hop Nation, I, I guess the reason we're passionate about it is because we literally are, it is a, it's, it's life, you know, we would be, would we trade activism just to be poets and artists and rappers? Sure. Um, would we just want to wake up and be in whatever our human condition is, whether it's cerebral palsy, deafness, um, you know, paralysis, you know, latent deafness. But we, the passion that drives Clip Hop Nation is one for the kids um, to say, hey, I can do it, you know, and, and I'm, I, I'm very conscious of what we do and Leroy is exceedingly precious and conscious of what we do because we understand what, what the mantra role model can mean and what it should mean and, and how, but also how people who are not in alignment with your, your spirit or, or even wanting the best of you can use that as a curmudgeon to beat you over the head with it. And so, we're passionate about it because to look at to, you know, we're from that same generation. So I grew up watching Sam from the Sun, Chico and the Man, you know, 
you know, you had Fish, you had Barney Miller, or you had, or you had the Mantle Uncle, or you know, you had Heat of the Night. You had all of these things where to have anything other than white on television was amazing. And so you craved for it because everything that was not white on TV was telling you that you were not worthy. So when you talk about Crip Hop and what we're doing, the passion is to be able to turn to a child who may have never seen uh, another person with a disability, not because they just like, I don't want to see them, but because society is not set up to be embracing of your fullness of your humanity. So if they see a Keith Jones or a Leroy Moore or Tony Hickman or, you know, or, or you know, a Caitlin from Wheelchairs Boys Camp or, you know, an Archie from Africa, you see, you know, inclusive in Australia, that your human condition does not define your creativity. What defines your creativity is your expression and your opportunity to give it. And so um, that's really what we're passionate about. And it's crazy that we did this, we started on MySpace and here we are now 20 years later and we give them the song, the world a song attached to the documentary Rising Phoenix and the title song by the same name and won an Emmy. And and now, and, you know, and parents are like, I never thought my kid could have a, a life. And I used to ask, why? You know, we love our family. And so we're passionate about it because the world can be a better place. We can have a better, we can have inclusive education where teachers are valued and supported, students are valued and supported, and we build a structure and a system that caters to their strengths, their talents, and their likes versus shoving them into these cubicles because we have a pre-prescribed pre pre notion of what they should be, which literally, how many people we know in our age now, like, I did this because my mother wanted me to be an accountant. And I hated it. And now I'm retiring and I'm going to go like painting, like watch whales. Like, well, what, what could, how much happier could you have been if your educational outlet gave you something where you didn't need to have quote a PhD or a master's degree, where your skill set and your life experiences are your talent? And how, how much more open and creative and accepting would our society be? So that's really sort of like the undergirding of the philosophy of why we do it is because at the end of the day, we don't want to have to do it. You know, you should just be glad that Diana is Diana because Diana is dope. Not because Diana is like, well, Diana's dope because she's this, you know, like it's no, she just is a, the spirit radiates everything versus, you know, well, you know, I'm dope, but if you ask me to cook, I might burn down the house. So. You know, we, we accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. So. Yeah. Everybody has a contribution to make in our community, you know, and sometimes, you know, those days, like you talked about your mom and, and all the educators out here, you know, there are days when you go in and you're, teach, you're, you're trying to teach somebody else's child who they've raised in a different way. And it's not always easy, but there are people like you are who are here to remind us that everybody does have a contribution to make and we yes. are the ones who are in leadership and the, we are the influencers i say that all the time educators yes. are influencers and so how we believe and how we behave is going to influence the way that others uh, the other educators are going to yes 
behave and think and believe as well as the students with and without disabilities in our classrooms and on our campuses. I really appreciate you sharing about that and congratulations on the Emmy. So I am so excited about this Rising Phoenix song. What is the name of the song? It's Rising Phoenix, it's, right? Yeah, the song, the song title in the documentary are both called Rising Phoenix and we're still on Netflix. Awesome, yeah, on Netflix, I love it. Well, I am gonna play a clip, uh, play a clip, that was a Freudian slip. I'm gonna <laughs> play a clip of Rising Phoenix right now. Here we go. How we drew, how they made it sit. But that's what you feel around vultures and all the fatal schemes They wanna label me a cripple, that's the way it seems Take away my right to pursue a normal life and live. Indeed, for me, I must proceed and shine bright like the sun Even though I know the darkness will come, it's all temporary I can be legendary, cause I will never stop believing in me It doesn't matter what you think I should be See, I am what I am, I'm the truth, I'm disabled, I'm amazing, understand Do you have any last words of wisdom you want to share? I guess the last word is remember why you do this. You know, um, typically when I'm when I'm doing educational trainings or, or speeches, um, I'll ask a teacher, why do you teach? And if it takes longer than 30 seconds to answer the question, you don't need to teach anymore. Ah. Because this is not, because we're not in the business of making widgets. Like you are in the business of affecting and shaping people's lives. And again, the, 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 the larger or more popular quote unquote narrative is that teachers are, you know, we're you know, ban books and teachers are teaching this. You are the fulcrum point of any successful society. You can either be, the, again, the launching pad or the brick wall. You can be, you are the reason that people wake up and say, I am here because a teacher believes in me. Mm. You know, I, I am, the, you may be the one, you probably are that one person that if a student comes with a different human condition or different, different way of looking at the world, you may be that one rung on the ladder that they can cling to, to pull themselves to the heights that they see themselves going. But if you can, but if you within yourself um, can't reassess and reevaluate and realize why you do this, and it's not to project your isms, or you know, or to codify students in this larger, well, you know, Johnny doesn't read this way, so he can't be in my class. Johnny, there's there's no human who stands up in front of a classroom full of students and can glance out over that mass of humanity and identify each way each individual learns. You can't do it, because if we could have did it, our educational system wouldn't be the way it is. So the way I hope um, I inspire teachers or even motivate you or just remind you that you are the deal, you are that, like y'all are the people. Yes, you can still have beliefs that are not um, popular, but as a teacher, you have the ability, even if you don't like the students, 
but you have the ability to be the most positive, the most, the most energetic and most encouraging force in their life. But it can't be done that way if you look at me rolling into your classroom and instantly say, that Negro in a wheelchair ain't ready to learn because that's reality. Because students with disabilities are graduating at a 12% rate in four years out of high school versus their counterparts. Students in higher education are roughly about 2.3% of the total higher education population, which is why 90% of the people with disabilities who are in poverty or abject poverty. So this is not about, um, you know, downing teachers. This is just a, realize your power. You are the people, and it's and not and, but it, it's almost like you can use it for a force of good or evil, right? You know, you can you can you can either be like I'm gonna teach you, and I'm gonna teach you like I'm gonna teach you factually based information, and put it in a way that you can attain, assess, hold on, and reaffirm and re 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 um reimagine and re and tap into this education to this information, or I can just give you propaganda in order to keep feeding the narrative. I hope that teachers go into the classroom, parents, when you send your kids out the door, encourage them that however you, however you take information in, it's okay. Whether you need to put it to a beat, whether you need it to be in the crayons, whether you need it to be in a cartoon or a movie or just reading. And for teachers that you can be creative and use multitudes of ways to impart information on your class because that's that's the job and we love you thank you for the job that you do it ain't easy it's, it's thankless we love you and mm -hmm. so keep doing what you do thank you for tuning into this episode of beyond awareness disability awareness that matters if this was helpful to you be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also follow me, Diana, on Instagram at Diana Pastora Carson and on Facebook at facebook.com slash go beyond awareness. Or you can go to my website for more information at dianapastoracarson.com. My books include Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 Schools and Communities, as well as my children's book, Ed Roberts, Champion of Disability Rights. Both books can be found on Amazon. For your free Beyond Awareness resource called The Five Keys to Going Beyond Awareness, simply go to gobeyondawareness.com slash keys. This podcast transcription and podcast guest information can be found in the show notes. Intro and outro music has been provided courtesy of Emmanuel Castro. Thank you again. Be well, be a lifelong learner, and let's be inclusive. See you next time. Manos arriba, arriba, todas las